You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Louis Dartnell, who is a professor of science communication at University of Westminster, also used to be at the UK Space Agency, and the author of a bunch of books. The most recent one is called Origins, How Earth's History Shaped Human History. And then before that, fascinating book called The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch. Also the author of a book called Life in the Universe. And you also have an illustrated children's book about exploring the solar system. So uh, welcome, Lewis. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me. Now, this most recent book, Origins, I trained as an historian, and I was in the Fernand Braudel School of Things, which is La Longue Durée. When we thought about the Longue Durée, we were thinking millennia. And, you know, here you you come out with this book. This is really like the serious Longue Durée going all the way back to when the world was nothing more than a molten lump of steaming crap, right? <laughs> and then fast forward... And I was wondering, I mean, since your background is in planetary science, it really gives you a a perspective on things. I very, very briefly studied astrophysics, and I decided that that was just way, way, way too far removed from the human experience for, for me to deal with. But you tie together, you show very convincingly, I think, about how the humanity, the existence of humanity and the human experience has been impacted or even made possible by things like the movement of the tectonic plates and, you know, the great oxidization explosion or whatever. And I I found it absolutely fascinating because while people are increasingly focused on things like global warming in the short run, that most people are completely oblivious to the real long run. So do you think, I mean, having, understanding these large scale geological, and initially, by the way, when I started reading the book, I thought, oh, this Lewis is a geologist because it had all these these ge- geological scientific claims, but really, you know, you're a planetary scientist. Actually, I'm neither. I'm my first degree. My background is in biology. I, I read biological sciences uh, at Oxford uh, for my undergraduate, and then got involved in astrobiology for my PhD, and then subsequent research career, which is all about looking at the possibility of life on other planets. So I spend most of my time thinking about our next door neighbor world. Mars and whether there could be hardy microbial life, hardy bacteria on the surface or underground there and then how we could find it. But I think that the sort of perspective I gained from becoming trained as an astrobiologist and thinking about lots of different areas of science at the same time and the overlap between them with, with astrobiology gave me a sort of a broader interdisciplinary perspective on other things, which is what I've tried to bring to my science writing, to my book writing, as you mentioned, both with the previous book with the knowledge and then with the, the most recent book, Origins, which I, I tried to write, as you sort of hinted at already, I tried to write as, as a big history book, which, which I guess is a sort of more modern variation on, on long durée. It's basically talking about the same thing. But I tried to write, based on my more recent background in planetary history as well, the, the biggest of big histories that could be written. So like I say, looking, surveying across the in, entire history of our planet, but from a human point of view what is it about the world we live in it's, it's different aspects it's different features whether that's plate tectonics or the uh, circulation of the atmosphere high above our heads or where different resources and minerals and metal ores can be found how have all those different facets of our world had this defining guiding influence on human history and, and the whole of our story right from from our origins in east africa and what was quirky about that particular location over the last five, six million years of our evolution, right up to, to the modern day. So how do things, how do features of our planet impact even politics and, and who people choose to vote for in, in elections? Yeah, I know, right. Talking about the kind of black belt in the South and also the coal belt in, yeah. in, in the UK. I mean, presumably mm. those things will fade over time, right? As the coal and the cotton ceased to be important parts of the economy. One, one would expect those things to slide away in human history. Yeah, I mean, they do. So um, throughout human history, as we've uh, gained new understanding and therefore developed new technologies, 
the, the relative importance, whether that's you know, sort of economic importance or maybe military importance of different resources around the world changes over time. So, you know, crude oil had no political or economic significance until, you know, relatively recent in our history when we worked out what we could do with it. And, you know, a thousand years ago, it was 1500, 2000 years ago, it's, it's been different metals that have changed their importance from bronze made up as of, of an alloy of copper and tin through to iron. And nowadays we use you know, aluminium, tungsten, titanium, a whole range of, of, of different metals. And therefore the relative importance of where those metals can be found changes. And that shifts the, the sort of geography of, of power. So, you know, the, the main copper deposits around the Mediterranean basin were critical in the, in the Bronze Age, less so now, whereas where the rare earth metals can be found today is of prime geopolitical importance, you know, in, in the... Endangered metals. Exactly. <laughs> I like that phrase. And, and, it, and it turns out that most of the rare earth metals mined today, uh, about 80% of global demand, in fact, is being supplied by China. And that, and that gives China not just an economic opportunity, but a huge diplomatic leverage in its mm -hmm. international discussions. Now, one of the things that the book really makes you aware of is sort of the contingency, right? The confluence of unlikely events that had to happen for there to be life, and in particular, human life or intelligent life. So if you were sort of looking at the Earth from afar as a planetary scientist, biologist from <laughs> outer space, how likely is it that you would expect there to be life on Earth, right? If you were out there in Alpha Centauri or wherever and looking at, there's this little blue planet somewhere, like how, how likely is it that you would expect there to be what we actually have here on the planet? Well, this is very much the question that is being asked with great importance right now within the field of, of astrobiology, but, but sort of the mirror image of that question. So what can we do with our telescopes now to not only detect planets orbiting other stars in our galaxy, but characterize them? How can we get to know what the planet is like? And what features of the planet, as you mentioned, are important habitability for the possibility of life, of hardy bacterial life emerging on, on that sort of world? And then, you know, there's various things about how close to the star a planet orbits, how close to its sun it is, whether it's too hot uh, or too far away and cold. So is, is it within this Goldilocks zone of temperatures being just right for liquid water on the surface? You know, that, that's basically only the, the sort of minimum requirement, having liquid water, having a biosolvent on the planet. And I think there's probably a whole load of other things which come together to make a planet habitable and importantly keep it habitable for, for billions of years. So evolution has the opportunity to progress and, and develop from single cells, boring bacteria up to multicellular life, and then possibly even intelligent animal-like life forms like, like us, like humans. And things like plate tectonics and, and the atmospheric circulation and the greenhouse effect, these are all very, very important. They, they all combine to maintain a habitable environment on the planet. But what was quirky about our own evolution in the last five or six million years as we diverge from our most recent ancestors um, with, with chimpanzees, a lot of that story happened in East Africa. You know, that, that's the cradle of humanity as a species. Uh, and incidentally, Greg, is, is also where I spent a lot of my own childhood. I, I grew up in Nairobi in Kenya when my family was living uh, overseas. So I have, you know, very, very many fond memories of, of weekends spent driving with my mum and sister across the savannah, around the sort of safari parks of Kenya, looking at, you know, the sort of stomping ground of our ancestors, you know, the very origins of humanity itself. And what seems to be important for the evolution of humanity and specifically for driving the evolution of intelligence, of big brains, as an answer to a particular survival question posed by the environment, has been a combination of plate tectonics and the ripping open of Earth's skin, tearing open of the planet's crust to create the Great Rift Valley that runs right through Kenya and further south. And the sort of landscape that's created and how that landscape and the availability of water and lakes running along the, the, the floor, the, the, the middle of the Great Rift Valley, interact with climactic fluctuations and particularly climactic fluctuations driven by the Milankovitch cycles. So wobbles and Earth's tilt or slight variations in our orbit around the sun. And the interaction of those cosmic cycles with this planetary stage created by the Great Rift Valley created periods of extreme fluctuating climatic condition environment where it would be 
wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. And so that created a chaotic environment that in order to adapt to, our ancestors developed intelligence. And intelligence is the solution to being able to outthink an unpredictable, chaotic environment and therefore prevail and survive. And then, of course, we you know, migrated and dispersed out of our cradle to come to inherit the entire planet. We migrated around the world during a different period of Earth's climactic history, which was the last great ice age. Around 70,000 years ago is when we quit Africa. We started dispersing around the world. Yeah, so this was a little bit intriguing. I've heard this argument before that humans are the Swiss army knives of the animal kingdom and that we have this capacity to thrive in, in variable in, environments. But how frequently would we have to have these cycles of rapidly changing environment in order for intelligence to emerge as a, as a superpower? I mean, if, as you say, when things get wet, all the animals that are adapted to the dry climate are going to kind of go extinct. And then when it goes dry, all the animals that are adapted to the wet environment are going to go extinct and, you know, hot, cold and so forth. But it, it seems like that those cycles are going to happen so slow that it would be difficult for intelligence to emerge. Don't the cycles have to be sufficiently rapid that it drives evolution? How, how does that work, actually? Yeah, so the, the, sort of the key step here is what some researchers have identified uh, and they call amplifier lakes, that are a string of lakes along the Rift Valley floor, which are particularly sensitive to even small variations in the amount of rainfall over that part of the planet. And it's, it's those that, that form this crucial mis missing step between the very, very slow process of plate tectonics that creates the landscape around you, which, which has basically been static. I mean, it has changed slightly over the last five, six million years, but it's basically a, a set stage for our story, for the, the human evolution story. And then the faster, but still relatively slow on a human timescale, on a generational timescale, these uh, Milankovitch variations. But it's the lakes which can vary very, very rapidly, you know, over the course of a human lifespan and therefore have the ability to have an impact on evolutionary matters, but, you know, by discriminating between survival and death of particular individuals and therefore driving uh, genetic change and, and evolution. So it was this chaotic environment that, that drove our evolution towards intelligence. And then as you hinted, Greg, it was, it was that intelligence which gave us this, this wonderful Swiss Army knife toolkit so that we could adapt to many, many different kinds of environments around the world, you know, from, from very arid areas of the Sahara Desert, the, the, the grassy steppes running through the middle of Eurasia, very, very cold areas from the tundra, even up into Arctic, you know, frozen landscapes. It was, it was our big brain that enabled us to survive in these locations by using technology and, and particularly uh, being able to make clothes for ourselves. You know, we no, we no longer had to rely on the, the fur or whatever sort of insulation evolution had bestowed us with, because we're basically naked as an ape. We lost all of our hair in our recent evolution, but we could create artificial fur. We created clothing and we developed technology, uh, technologies a long time ago, like sewing needles and then using sort of thread or, or animal sinew to stitch bits of leather or hide or fabrics, which we worked out how to, how to weave into close fitting, warm clothes with much greater proficiency than either our even our close evolutionary cousins like Neanderthals were able to. So it's, it's thought nowadays that Neanderthals weren't driven to extinction in this sort of violent contest with humans, these upstarts uh, emerging out of Africa and displacing them. Uh, and indeed, there's a lot of evidence for interbreeding between us, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. But it seems we, we sort of outthought them. We were able to outcommunicate them. We, we had slightly better technology and so we could outcompete them around the world. And then have become the only surviving hominin species on planet Earth from, from this entire flourishing tree of, of human-like creatures with, with a sole survivor, as it were. Well, this actually takes us to the second book, because while the superpower of intelligence is, is wonderful, you know, it allows you to figure things out on the fly. I mean, the real superpower is culture, because we can accumulate this knowledge, learn from our ancestors and essentially outsource the storage of all this knowledge into this kind of distributed ledger of culture. But the amount of information that we have has gotten to the point where, you know, there's no one person that can carry this stuff around. <laughs> I remember the book with the knowledge reminded me of this book I read as a kid. It was Connecticut Yankee goes to 
King Arthur's Court. You know, did you ever read read that one? That that book. I, I have done that. that so, actually, if, if if your listeners wanted to go to the Knowledge Books website, which is the hyphen knowledge.org, um, you can click through the links um, in the menu at the top, and there's a list of recommended reads. So there's a whole bunch of sort of science and history books, but also there's a lot of fiction books. And Mark Twain's book, I recommend, along with a whole bunch of other books that all explore this similar idea of how could you go right back to basics, right back to scratch, and reinvent or rediscover everything that is useful, everything we take for granted um, in our modern lives, um, including very recent books like Andy Weir's The Martian, which is basically Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson, set not on a desert island beach, but on the desert planet of, of Mars, and how you can create even breathable atmosphere or drinkable water for yourself by applying your ingenuity, applying your, your understanding of science to create tools and technology to, to support you. Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that an ordinary 21st century person would have in their head that they could take back with them. So you mentioned the example of like a wheelbarrow. It doesn't require a great deal of technical expertise to construct a, a wheelbarrow. It's just kind of the the idea of it, which is the exactly Once you know concept. its existence, it's easy to, to re rebuild, yeah. Actually, once you just kind of see it in action, you're like, oh, okay, mm. that's a nice idea, right? But for most of the things, it's pretty hard to replicate. I had a podcast earlier, we talked about the illusion of explanatory depth, which is where we think, oh yeah, toilet, I could build a toilet, give me a couple tools. But most people don't have no clue how to build a toilet. How hard can it really be? Eh? Right? Yeah, most people yeah, have no yeah. clue how to build any of this stuff. And and so this this project of distilling down the basics, you don't want to have to plant seeds and watch them grow for another 100,000 years. You want to basically skip over all of the Leap, leapfrog yeah. in the early stages. And, yeah. I mean, has anybody ever, I know you, you mentioned the seed libraries that we have, the seed archives that we have. Is there any effort to do what you're proposing here? I mean, is there any effort to take the knowledge that the basic knowledge that you would need to reconstruct civilization and, and put it into a format, meaning a non-digital format that people could actually kind of, you know, refer to should some event like this happen? I mean, it seems like we're thinking about comets that could destroy the world. We're thinking about all these yeah. things that could potentially destroy the world and we're trying to keep it from happening. But is there anybody doing any contingency planning on what if this stuff <laughs> does happen? Well, I mean, there are really good historical examples of exactly that. And if you go back to the sort of 1700s and the first encyclopedia compiler, so people, people like Dennis Diderot, Dido Wright wrote in the sort of introduction, the preface to, her, to this very first encyclopedia, this compendium of the sum total of human knowledge. And he made a very genuine attempt to write down and record and preserve and save everything that was known by humanity at, at that point in time. And he wrote very explicitly in this preface because he wanted to safeguard that knowledge in case there were to be some kind of catastrophe such as which befell the ancient Western Roman Empire and, and collapsed that as a civilization. It was a sort of localized apocalypse in, in that sense. He wants to be able to preserve that information for posterity, for future generations to allow them to, to recover and rebuild. And it was genuinely used in the 1700s with, with ship captains. You know, they, they'd pack a copy of Diderot's encyclopedia in their sailing ships when they're going to you know, uninhabited islands or new lands and trying to establish society. And they're sort of taking the condensed essence of civilization with them and all the knowledge they would need and the tools they would need to unpack society and rebuild it from scratch. In terms of modern day projects, it's something that, that is talked about quite often. And there's some fascinating examples, again, that, that I talk about on the, the book's website, the hyphen knowledge.org. So you can, you can read much more in depth about that if, you, if you're interested. But organizations like the Long Now Foundation, for example, that's based in San Francisco, has started a genuine attempt at building what they call a manual for civilization. So sort of riffing on the, on the, the conceit that I was playing with in, in my book, The Knowledge, about how you could, you could boil down and encapsulate the sum total of human knowledge in a single book that allow you to recover after an apocalypse. They are building, obviously, not, not just one book, but a library of books, which is you know, cl clearly more useful than just 300 pages. And they've invited a whole bunch of different people to nominate or recommend the top, top 10 maybe books that each person thinks would be the most significant 
And what's been really, really interesting from this project is it's not just books about science or engineering or medicine or, or practical things. It's books which are culturally enriching. You know, books about sociology or the human condition or works of literature or works of art, which of course is, is as crucial for the proper and fulfilling function of society as is the knowledge and science behind the scenes to make and, and build things for us. And I've, you know, I've had many fascinating conversations with a wide variety of people about possibly taking it even more seriously and actually compiling or even maybe writing a self-consistent set of, of instructions and practical knowledge with maybe sort of diagrams and short videos, creating that as an actual physical artifact and then storing it in hardened bunkers, maybe dotted around the world with maybe maps left around of, of where to find these capsules for, for civilization. But it's, you know, that, that would be a, a, a lot of work to take on, quite an expensive project to see fruition. But there's, there's very serious conversations along those lines in terms of protecting and preserving the, the long-term future of humanity in the worst case scenario, which, you know, touch wood hope, hopefully never happens. I don't believe the world is about to end. I'm not a survivalist or prepper. That wasn't the perspective I was coming from when I wrote the knowledge. But it's also not impossible. You know, plenty of civilizations have collapsed in the past. It could happen to our modern, industrialized, globalized civilization even today. Yeah. One of the things that, of course, I thought when I read the book was, as a social scientist, I thought, well, okay, wh where is the legal technology here, right? Where is the managerial technology? Because we've seen examples of civilizations when they become isolated and adrift that the scientific knowledge kind of disappears. And I, it occurred to me that if they had the scientific knowledge at the beginning of their experience, why would it disappear? And partially, I, I think it's because the legal and managerial infrastructure that is needed to keep that civilization afloat would disappear. So in your book, you describe a bunch of citizens who are relatively well-behaved, who are sort of more or less cooperative. You know, it wasn't like Mad Max where everybody's out just trying to kill everybody. And that's, of course, the scenario that we see in, in the various science fiction stories. That, of course, you'd have to kind of add in a little bit there. But again, I don't know whether that's it's appropriate to think of that as a technology. I'd like to think it's a technology, but is knowledge of how to construct a society and build an organization to do things like accounting and a system of laws, should we think of that as technology in the same way that we, we think about the kind of mechanics and engineering that you describe? Yeah, so, so in the first chapter of the knowledge, I describe various existential hazards that genuinely could collapse, that the current world order could, could cause some kind of global catastrophe or apocalypse and, and force this global reset. And with, with a small community of survivors now needing to uh, know how to reboot. You said there are better and worse ways to, to have a civilization collapse. And I, and I like the best one is when just sort of 99% of the population just kind of vaporizes, right? It reminded me of with Tom Parada's book, The Leftovers, right? Where people just vanish, right? Yeah, vanish off the face of the earth. Yeah, so the, the different ways the world could end. And if I were to give you a, a menu, Greg, of possible catastrophes, which you know you're going to survive, but you have to pick which one you think you, you would have the best possibility to, to reboot as quickly as possible afterwards, I would strongly suggest you don't click or tick something like asteroid impact or global thermonuclear war, because those collapsing events would leave the world in such a devastated state afterwards, it'd be very hard to bounce back quickly. And the best way the world could end, as it were, from the point of view of survivors, might be something like a fast-moving, highly virulent, um, highly lethality um, global pandemic, some kind of viral pandemic that wipes out a lot of the people very quickly, but leaves behind a lot of the infrastructure and, and stuff left behind undamaged, so that the survivors have then got what I call in the book a grace period. You've got this period of time when you can scavenge and forage what you need, you know, sort of raid the abandoned supermarkets, get canned food, whilst you work out for yourself the fundamentals of farming and growing food for yourself um, before you then have to start really going back to scratch and pulling yourself back up by your bootstrap. So there's, there's different scenarios that could end the world. But by the beginning of chapter two of the book, I, I kind of don't care. Like It's happened. The, the world has ended. The reset button's been pushed. And now the thing I wanted to explore as a scientist 
was what steps would you go through to recover as quickly as possible? How could you leapfrog over slightly simpler technologies to get to the most useful things? What would you want to rush to as quickly as possible through this interlinked network of, of scientific understanding and technological invention to rebuild a slightly advanced civilization as quickly as you could? And as I said, I'm a scientist, so I focused on the science and technology, but of course that isn't all you need for a functioning society. It's, it's as much about economics and politics and, and sort of bureaucracy and statecraft have, have been hugely, phenomenally important through history. And so the sort of short answer as to why I didn't really include any of that in the knowledge book is because I'm a scientist and I wanted to write a popular science book. You know, there is only so much you can fit in 300 pages. And I thought it'd be worth having a good stab at biting off and chewing the science and technology aspect of what runs behind the scenes that we take for granted. But also there's a, there was a deeper reason there as well, that a lot of science and understanding can be boiled down to its essence. You know, I could tell you in some simple steps how to make glass from scratch. And in fact, I did this as a Robinson Crusoe experiment for myself, where I made some glass from scratch using only the raw materials you can collect for yourself from a single beach, and then showed how you could go through the process of forming that glass material into a lens, a way of manipulating light itself to allow you to build a microscope to discover bacteria again, or a telescope so you could explore the cosmos. This sounds to me like a wonderful idea for a new type of tourism, <laughs> yeah, particularly for kids. I right? can you imagine, you know, you send your kids off for the summer and they have to build clothing from scratch. And it's kind of like the new, a, a very primitive kind of Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Yeah, I, I think I think it make a, a great TV series, kind of showing some of the stuff for real. Like, how do you go back to the land, go back to absolute basics and make things which are useful and then show how they connect with each other and how you use uh, tool A with tool B to make tool C, and then you combine up something else and you, you know, say, work your way back up the ladder. But while you can boil down the essence of technology to its key components so that someone can sort of fill in the gaps and, and reinvent it themselves very, very quickly, as we said, for example, with the, the simple example of the wheelbarrow, once you know the possibility of a tool that works this way, it's probably quite easy to reinvent. It's only quicker than having to stumble across it completely naively yourself. And that's true of not only scientific principles, but also tools and technology. But I don't think that's true of a lot of things within sociology or economics. And I, I went through the thought process of considering, you know, do I, do I write a 10 step guide to establishing a parliamentary democracy for yourself from scratch as, as a post apocalypse community? And I realized how ridiculous that was because you can know the steps you might need to go through. But you need to have your culture, your society to be ready to make that next step. And, and there's a reason why democracies took a long time to develop in our own history, because you have to have mechanisms for the many to seize back power from the few, you know, from, from the aristocrats or from the elites of your society. And it doesn't matter if the peasants have got a copy of my book, The Knowledge, that tells them, well, this is how you establish a democracy, because the society has to be in, in a receptive state or have gone through a process of development to get there. But you can encapsulate things like science and technology and compress them down. Well, social scientists think about this all the time, right? So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were thinking, okay, well, we've got a blank slate here. Let's just figure out what are the key elements to, if you put them in place and add water, you're just going to get this wonderful democratic capitalism. And it, it, it was it turned out to be a little bit more difficult than they ever expected. <laughs> I, um, I think you'll find it's a little bit harder than that. Yeah. But the concept, the intellectual challenge that you put for yourself is one that I find fascinating because you're looking for a compression algorithm of sorts. You're looking for how can we, if we think of a dehydrated set of knowledge and we add water we can get back to where we are, but the water is essential. The water is the scientific method. So the last chapter is really about the scientific method. So without the scientific- Which is itself a technology in its yeah. own right. And if we don't have the scientific method, then it doesn't matter you know, where you start, you're never gonna get to kind of where you wanna be. And so what can be inferred from what? And the metaphor I was thinking of when I was reading this was, if you go back to those seed banks, right? If you really, really had to, you could probably just have one type of corn in there. And then with selective breeding, you could recreate all the variations on corn that we have today. It might take a while, but you're not going to be able to get the wheat from corn. It's going to be extremely difficult. So what's the equivalent here in terms of scientific knowledge? How can you 
get down to the basics and then expect that over time you can, through the application of scientific method, get to all the variations. And that's an extremely difficult exercise. If you never asked the question, you wouldn't realize how difficult that, that exercise actually is. It is. I mean, if, if you were doing this project genuinely and wanted to create a, a library of civilization, a manual for civilization, you, you couldn't possibly record everything which is known. It might have been possible in Diderot's time back in the 1700s. It's simply not possible today. And even something like Wikipedia it is a shadow of a mere fragment of the actual sum total of human knowledge. And, and it doesn't include a lot of sort of methodological stuff or the practical details of how you could actually do this thing. It just, just describes what it's for. And you'd have to fill in all of that practical detail alongside diagrams and, and maybe cartoons of the steps or a short video showing someone how they could do it. So it would be a process of thinking very, very carefully about what could you get away with leaving out within your compression algorithm metaphor, which I think is a really neat way of putting it. What could you afford to leave out, but would still be readily rediscovered as this community of survivors re rebooted if you show the most important key technologies, you know, the, the sort of hubs, if you like, in this network of spreading science technology. What can they quickly fill in themselves anyway? Or what could literally leapfrog them through 500 years of our own historical development if you gave them just, just a nugget of insight into, well, why don't you try this? Try this experiment, watch what happens, and that tells you something really interesting. And from that, you can, you can take the next step. Or build this tool because it will enable, it'll open up all these other possibilities in this branching tree diagram of, of capability. And, and as I said, with, with the, the knowledge, with the book, it was a conceit. It was a sleight of hand. There's a huge amount of stuff that's just swept under the rug and quietly ignored because it was impossible to put into 300 pages. But it'd be, it would be such an interesting academic enterprise, intellectual enterprise to go through and actually create a, a library. And, and with the conversations I've been having, serious conversations about this as well, is that it wouldn't just be the ultimate backup, the ultimate save file of human civilization that you could reload and reboot if you needed to in, in the event of the worst case scenario, it would have a lot of really useful practical applications, you know, here, here and now in the world today. It'd be a fascinating educational resource, you know, like sort of, you know, say, get, get the Cub Scouts and their troop or the Girl Guides to do some of these hands-on projects in an afternoon or something you could do as a maker project or DIY project with the children at home. But it would also have applications in the developing world in, in terms of intermediate technologies or appropriate technologies to accelerate the development to more useful levels or disaster recovery. You know, if, if a tsunami or earthquake hits, hits a particular region, if people were to have a copy of, of some kind of book like this and maybe an electronic form and, you know, Kindle or other e-reader, you could scan through to, well, this is how you make clean water in five or six different ways, depending on the situation you find yourself in. So it would have a number of really useful practical outcomes and applications today, but possibly could have by far the greatest utility if the end of the world ever did come, if, it, if there was a, a catastrophic global event and the community survivors had access to this kind of document or, or library of documents, you, as you say, you could save thousands, save thousands of years of the dark ages and reboot as, as quickly as you could. Well, you do point out that the human species has been through a bottleneck in the past. We have less genetic diversity than a small patch of chimpanzees in the Congo. That's pretty astonishing that we went through this at some point. So particularly when you look at human populations who are living outside Africa. So, so the vast majority of human evolution, human history has been in Africa. And that is where we find the greatest genetic diversity across the entire species is still in our home stomping grounds in the African continent. And there's actually very, very little genetic diversity across people living everywhere else in the world. But even within that, as you say, and I, I think I talk about this in Origins, there's still more genetic diversity in you know, sort of troops of chimpanzees than there is in, in the human population. But because we've gone through a relatively recent population explosion, expansion, after we emigrated, after we dispersed out of Africa and then around the world, our population has been increasing relatively rapidly since then. So it, it's, it's gone through a sort of population bottleneck in that sense but not really in a, in a sort of catastrophe. There's not been like a mass extinction or near mass extinction of, of humanity in, in that sense. Well, one of the things that, that the book highlights is how specialized we really are, particularly in, in the Western modern world. You cite that book, I Pencil, from 
nearly a hundred years ago. I forget when that was written, but it's only gotten even- 1950s, I think. Yeah, it's only gotten even more extreme. The idea of being a, like a Renaissance person, someone who yeah. has sufficient knowledge in all of these different domains, we kind of gave up on that a long time ago. D do you think that there's maybe some justification for subsidizing maybe some, some more general knowledge, having little pockets of people that, that would have some- broad perspective is the radical specialization does it create more fragility and less resilience or is that only going to be a problem if there's some massive 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 as long as we can kind of immediately repopulate the knowledge if there's a relatively small shock yeah so at some point in you know the history of, of development it became the last time in history when it was possible for one person to know broadly everything that there was known and, and indeed there's a great sort of history of science book that's been called The Last Man Who Knew Everything. And you, know, you can debate about who that was or what period in history it happened, and it's probably earlier than you'd think, which is why things like encyclopedias emerged to meet that demand of an external source or external storage of, of things which were known because no one brain, no one mind could still store it all. And it effectively therefore became outsourced to a much greater extent than it had previously around all the minds of society. Uh, and therefore each person each individual within society takes on a more and more tightly defined, more and more narrow role within society. And indeed, that is necessary for civilization to progress to higher levels of, of technology. You need someone that knows one subject incredibly well to run a nuclear power station or to build a re rechargeable battery. And, and you can't have everyone being generalists. So it's, it is necessary for a technological civilization for that society to be very niche driven in terms of the different roles that people have. And as, as a flip side of that coin, yes, I think you're right. But with that ultra specialization of people knowing only a tiny little slither of all that is known just to perform their own role within society, society becomes a little more fragile. It becomes more susceptible to shattering if you hit it hard enough, if you have a, a sufficiently catastrophic event and that network effect of society, of civilization starts fragmenting, you can get a very sudden collapse because not only is the knowledge distributed through the network but but also the capabilities are right like i mean if you're if you were in north korea and you didn't have access to the internet you know and you couldn't yeah. reference all the knowledge that happened outside of north korea i mean that would very quickly re revert back to a pretty primitive state i mean it may do i don't know and you might find that a, a lot of people living in north korea are probably um, living a relatively rural existence, so they're already to a certain extent, you know, self-sustaining. And I, I keep talking about civilization, but I don't think we should ignore the large number of humans around the planet who don't live in civilizations. So they don't live in, you know, cities. They don't use a lot of high technology, but they are perfectly competent and perfectly happy supporting themselves as, you know, subsistence farmers and, and weaving and creating all the tools that, that they use. Well, indeed, that's that's your first recommendation, right? Get to get out of the city <laughs> since there's a... You would want to get out of the city in the, in the event of an apocalypse for, for various very good and some very messy reasons. Joseph Tainter is, is, is an author who's written about the potential for civilizations to very suddenly collapse. And, and the reason for that is the connectivity is one thing leading to another, one thing relying on 10 other things to, to be possible. Um, and we, we did see this to a, to a limited extent with the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, creaks and, and cracks started appearing in the global supply chain and supermarket shelves were going bare, going empty. Because we don't, each nation state doesn't make all the things its citizens need. Because it ends up, it ends up being more efficient to have someone specializing it elsewhere in the world and then shipping it very cheaply everywhere else. And I say COVID-19 was never going to be, be a catastrophic hazard. Maybe some future pandemic might might collapse that fragile network of civilization. I hope not, but as I said, it's it's not impossible. But it is that specialization of role and specialization of productivity that, on the flip side of that, does create a more fragile state, more prone to sudden collapse. Is there a compression algorithm for creating life on another planet? The processes that you describe in Origins, where if we didn't have the Himalayas, then you know we wouldn't have carbon in the atmosphere which would that means we wouldn't have plants and if we didn't have plants then you know we wouldn't have oxygen and one fun fact that i learned from the book is that all those pictures of the very very ancient world with the volcanoes on fire are incorrect because there was no oxygen even 
Oh, so, so you you would get you would get like sort of the fire as it were coming out of a volcano because that's just very hot rock that that is emitting its own light. But you wouldn't get a forest fire if you go back far enough in Earth's history. Forest fires are impossible because there's not enough oxygen in the air. But indeed, the forests would have been impossible as well because forests need oxygen in the, in the atmosphere as well. And just the sheer scale of time, I did not know that the pyramids were basically built of little tiny creatures. The time span that is required for the accumulation of all of those creatures, it's, it's just boggles the it's mind. It's absolutely mind-boggling. It right? absolutely is mind-boggling, isn't it? You get the sensation of you know, standing on the edge of, of an absolute precipice when you start thinking about the deep time history of, of our planet. And so the pyramids were constructed you know, by the pharaohs, ultimately, instructing... Well, that was um, the other thing, is that Cleopatra is closer to us than to the construction of the of the pyramids. She, she is. She, she's closer to the time of the iPad and the iPhone than she is to the pyramids, or closer to the, the pyramid outside the Louvre uh, Art Gallery in, in Paris than she is to the, the pyramids of, of Giza. Which, which again, I, I quote that fact in Origins. It's just a really neat way of putting into, into perspective recent history, far history, distant history, and then stretching back over this gulf of geological time, which set the stage for, for the human story, as, as I mentioned already, and how it created the resources which we then learned how to how to make useful in building our cities, building our houses, building civilization, and not just the oolitic limestone which the pyramids are built out of, but all the other different rock types that we use, as well as how we worked out to extract metal, pure metal, out of its rocky ore, beginning with things like copper in earlier history, as we mentioned. So is there a way that we could compress all of that in, if we found some planet that lacked the conditions for life? Is there a starter kit that we could inject into that planet to accelerate the process, to create a, an habitat? This, this is moving into the realms of what's known as terraforming. Mm -hmm. and, and people think very seriously about how we might go about terraforming Mars. So Mars was... A long, long time ago, billions of years ago, when, when both Earth and Mars were you know, sort of primordial planets and had relatively similar environments back then. Mars had a much thicker atmosphere. It had you know, liquid water gushing across its surface. It had a lot of organic molecules and the building blocks of life present on Mars. But Mars failed as a habitable planet. It, it had this catastrophic environmental collapse. Its magnetic field disappeared. Its atmosphere began being blown away into outer space, it therefore became very cold on the surface and very dry on the surface of Mars. And so when people talk about terraforming Mars or making the Martian environment much more like the Earth is today, we're not really talking about creating something new. We're basically talking about turning back the hands of time, turning back Martian history to its primordial state when it did have a much more habitable environment. And so, you know, this comes down to things like how could you start pumping up the atmosphere on Mars, maybe by turning the carbon dioxide ice we find on the poles back into the atmosphere. People are talking about dropping nukes onto the, the poles, the polar ice caps of Mars to try to pump up the atmosphere and therefore create the conditions suitable for liquid water on its surface again. And then maybe seeding the Martian surface with ultra hardy forms of algae that can then grow in that moist soil to create oxygen in the atmosphere that humans may one day in the future, you know, centuries in the future, be able to take off the helmet of their spacesuit and take a deep lungful of Mars air and not die and, and sort of live uh, on the surface of Mars. And it, it's unclear as to whether that's possible at all. And if it is possible, it, it would take a long time. It would take centuries and centuries. But, but yes, we, we sort of, in broad brushstrokes, know what we would need to do and how we can encapsulate that into stuff we could put into the point end of a rocket, launch to Mars, unpack, you know, construct, and start that process of terraforming and creating a more Earth-like environment on Mars. And then if you look even deeper into the future, how we might do that as a star-faring species, not just exploring different planets in our own solar system, but traveling to other solar systems, traveling to other stars with planets in the galaxy, maybe settling those, colonizing other planets, maybe terraforming them if we need to. And this now becomes a problem of not only how can you, I love your compression algorithm uh, metaphor there, but compact down the sum total of human knowledge and all the technology you need when you get there, but also make humanity into some kind of form that could survive for hundreds of years 
you know, the, the huge amounts of time it takes to travel between one star to another in the galaxy, whether that might be cryogenic suspension or preserving just, you know, sort of eggs and sperm and creating artificial wombs to grow a first generation of humans when they arrive and, you know, all this sort of very science fiction sounding technology, people are starting to make, you know, steps toward realizing that even today. I say now, looking hundreds, not thousands of years into the future now. Of course, one of the reasons why people are talking about that is because of the concern around global warming and the discontinuities that we're seeing right now. And a lot of the story in Origins is there's some self-correcting elements, some equilibrating elements, but then there's also some kind of disequilibrating elements. There's some positive feedback loops that happen, particularly around this, this carbon cycle. So we look at what's happening now. I mean, obviously it's not unprecedented in, in the long history of, of humanity, but but in at least in our history, it is unprecedented. I talked to Beth Shapiro about genetic engineering and she said, look, a lot of people think that choices that we have available to us are either continue down the road of human intervention or just retreat and kind of let nature take its course. But she says there's a third option, which is actually using the science of genetic engineering to actively promote genetic diversity. With respect to global warming, is the choice between just continuing to do what we do versus doing less of what we do? Or is there a way that we can use our scientific knowledge to intervene in the this carbonization process and reverse it. Yeah, I don't think we simply can't afford to continue what we're doing at the moment. Therein lies disaster. Um, and and the, the signs are very, very clear. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt that climate change is happening and it's happening already. It's happening right now. And it is caused by human activity. So we simply cannot afford, even, even for very selfish, self-serving reasons, we cannot afford to continue as business as usual. We need, it's clear that we need to start doing less of many things, whether that's, you know, flying around the world and consumption, burning fossil fuels, but also changing the way that we do things. And, and clearly technology and new technologies are going to play a, a profound role um, in that transition, that decarbonization of our economy. You know, that'll be scaling up technologies we've already got a very good handle on, such as, you know, wind power, wind electricity, solar power, and, and hopefully cracking new technologies, which have been trying for a while now, like things like nuclear fusion. The solution to climate change is largely the solution to the problem of energy provisioning, providing energy without burning stuff that we've dug up from, from underground, as well as problems of overconsumption and, and overpopulation. It, it's largely an energy problem. But the point I make in Origins is the current situation we find ourselves in, that the problem we're finding with our with our planetary environment and, and global climate is a problem that we created basically as an unintended consequence of the solution we found to a previous global, if you like, problem, which was the energy scarcity from you know the late 1600s into the 1700s in, in Britain and in Europe, but then became around the world as well, where we there were simply not enough trees that we could sustainably chop down and through that log in, into a furnace for, for powering society and all the different things we need to do to, to support our lives. And people realize, well, actually, there's all this energy underground, this fossilized forest lying underground of the coal seams in industrializing Britain and, and then around the rest of the world. And we didn't realize at the time, but it's clear now that that let a genie out of the bottle, as it were. It granted our wish of effectively limitless energy for the 1700s, but has unleashed this evil side, this bad side of excess CO2 in the atmosphere and, and climate change. But I have, I have every confidence as a scientist that because it was our ingenuity and resourcefulness that created this problem in the first place, that we should have every confidence that our same ingenuity and resourcefulness will provide the solution to this problem. And that hopefully won't create another problem for us down the lines. But we, we do all need to be making personal changes to, to our lives as well. And in ways that we know about, you know, the, the message has, has, has come across loud and clear, but we need to be making an active decision to, to start following that, that advice. So when you walk around in your daily life, you must see things that other people don't see. 
after you know reading this book it's like i can't look at it like the little child in uh (laughs) who sees dead people yeah i mean i can't well i can't look at a piece of chalk anymore (laughs) in in the same way after reading this book can't go outside and feel the wind in the same way as i did before reading this book and just looking at sort of some basic objects like the phone and realizing you know how many rare metals there are in this phone it seems like this cultivation of curiosity is sort of the superpower that humans have, which enables them to survive. And if you, if you kind of shut that off, then it doesn't matter what kind of distilled knowledge you transmit to the next world. How do you stimulate that? I mean, how do you, you get people to look around and, and see things and, and not let the, the magnitude of the history you're describing kind of overwhelm them? Well, I mean, as an author, what I what I strive to do, what I, what I work very hard to do is take something which is commonplace or ordinary and then try to look at it from a different perspective to make it seem unfamiliar or weird or odd. And then through that perspective, be able to explain why is it we do something this way or where did something come from or, or how has that come about? And, and try to deliver some kind of oh, aha moment uh, when, when people read my writing. Um, you know, and, and I may be successful to greater or lesser extents in that, but it, but it's something I just just enjoy myself as, as a writer. But as a species, I think you're absolutely right. We 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 have got this intrinsic, innate curiosity, and and you know that again will be one of the spin-off technologies, if you like, cognitive technologies from our evolution in East Africa and the chaotic environment which we were forced to be curious about in order to understand, in order to be able to survive, and then we've walked that curious brain around the world as we dispersed out of Africa. Um, and I th- yes, I think it's, it is just something intrinsic about the, the human condition. I mean, I don't know if, if this might be a great science fiction book, but if there were to be some kind of virus that infects people and starts changing their, you know, sort of their neuroanatomy and the neurophysiology, so somehow curiosity was turned off, we would find ourselves in you know, very dire consequences if, if we lost that burning desire to understand and to explore well maybe science fiction will be your next uh your next domain my next foray yeah but look this book origins i think what it does is it, it in many ways reminds you of the contingencies that gave rise to kind of the human species and where we are today and then that almost sets you up to crave the insight of the knowledge because you realize hey you know we're, we're actually maybe very precarious and may collapse I certainly am going to make sure that this knowledge book is in a very, very, very safe space. Uh, so if, well, Greg, you, sh- you should probably buy a couple of extra copies and give them to all of your loved ones as well. That's right. And, case, you know, so. lock them up so that when my house burns down, I'm, I'm actually on them in I'm, a tin box at the bottom of the garden. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm on the fault. My house is sitting on, on the Hayward fault. So if it slides into the into fault, the I need to have this book somewhere and I can find it and, you know, restore things to normal. Lewis, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Greg, it's been a pleasure and a delight. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.